Is it on now? Yeah. I didn't touch it. <laughs> so it must have been off. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I would have thought if it was a sign from God, he would have turned it off when I had gone too long. But hey, um, maybe I did No, anyways. Um, we're in a series called Blah, 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 Yada, Yada, Yada. It's a, a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we kind of give a, a, a little bit of a warning going into the book that this is, this is um, Solomon under God's guidance kind of collecting human wisdom. And so a lot of things in this book sound good until you actually really look at them and realize that they're just the tiniest bit off. Some look terribly off and that you identify it right away. In particular, um, this, this passage that we're going to be looking at in just a minute um, this, this passage deals with some themes that are very common in the teachings of Jesus. And it, Solomon is getting toward the end of, of his deconstruction. Now, I haven't used that word before, but Ecclesiastes is basically a deconstructing of human wisdom so it can be replaced with God's. And so he kind of goes through this journey of, let's try this, no, this doesn't work, let's try this, no, that didn't work try this. No, that didn't work. And then he gets to a point, and we'll get to it next week, where he is so absolutely frustrated that he blames all the problems of the human world on women. He does. Now, you've got to read it. It's in, it's in the following chapters. But he actually, his ultimate conclusion, it's, it's just so incredibly weird. He's going on about God and all this stuff, and he says, and... Yeah, uh, it's all women's fault. It's just, it's, it's just totally random. It comes out of nowhere. But that's what happens when you're kind of breaking things down. You start to lash out at pretty much everybody. We'll deal with that next week. But this week we're going to be in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Ecclesiastes. And in these passages, the, Solomon is going to deal specifically with the topic of wealth. And that, that topic... Uh, is, is one of those things that we kind of hit or miss on in, in our American culture. Is it good, bad, and different to be wealthy, rich? Should we give everything we have? Because Jesus said things like, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And, and, and we kind of go back and forth on these. It's kind of a hot topic, especially in American Christianity, where we have so much. But specifically, he's going to be talking about wealth in relationship to what do you do with it. And, and so before we get there, we're going to go to Jesus. So if you turn to Ecclesiastes, we're going to move forward a little bit. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you. We're going to be in the book of Luke. Um, if you take the Bible and open it, probably about um, most of the way to the back, you will wind up in the New Testament. Um, odds are you will wind up in one of five books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Acts. Um, if you wind up anything that ends in Ian's, just move to your left a little bit, and you will find the Gospel of Luke. It's the third Gospel in the New Testament. And we're going to be in Luke chapter, 11, uh, chapter 12, and I'm going to begin in verse 13. And I'm just going to read the situation with Jesus. I'm not going to make a lot of commentary on it. Jesus is pretty self-explanatory in what he's talking about. But he, he says, this is the situation. In ch- chapter 12 and verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher or rabbi, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's an important phrase. We'll come back to that. 
he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. So if I could, if I could ask you to kind of carve out a niche in your, your imagination for this story and kind of sit it there, because it's going to have direct pertinence to what we're reading in the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to ask you now to go back to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be in chapter 5. Um, so go back about that far in your Bible, and you'll find Ecclesiastes. Um, and we're going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 8. This is what Solomon writes. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both or others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Now, the, this translation, the New International Translation, it, it, it it translates it, this last phrase, the king himself profits from all the fields. Um, other translations, because the phrasing is a little hard, the, it, it, it says basically, the king owns the fields. The fields are the king's, not yours. So um, don't worry about this. Because there's poor people, and then there are people higher than them, and then people higher than them, and then people higher than them, and ultimately we get to the king. And, and so you shouldn't worry about that because there's an order to the society. That's, that's what he's saying. Verse 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaning, meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Now what a fascinating little phrase. What a fascinating passage. As Solomon, who is by scriptural records a very, very wealthy man, says to poor people, be happy you're poor because you can sleep well. Now, that, that's, I mean, that should be enough, right? I mean, if Bill Gates came in and said, we know you guys are struggling, economy is rough, but at least you sleep well. I'm rich. I never sleep. I mean, what a comfort. Don't you feel comforted? Doesn't that, doesn't that make you feel good? You know, oh, the rich guy doesn't sleep. I mean, I mean he's got money and he can afford things, and, but he, doesn't, he, he has a hard time sleeping. So he has to take sleep aids, so we should feel bad for him. Um, but, but this is what he says. Now, I want to I kind of look at the ancient context of this a little bit so that we understand what we're talking about when we talk about wealth. Because it's very different from wealth in our modern society. What does it mean to be wealthy in our culture? What does it mean? What do you have? Stuff, money, property... It means that you've got more stuff than most people, right? 
I mean, that, that's ultimately what... There are more zeros in your bank account when you look at it online than there are in most people's bank accounts. Would, and, and the judgment of wealthy, we, we have a hard time really discerning. We, we can tell when somebody is very wealthy, and we can tell some, when somebody is not wealthy, but in our culture, we kind of have a hard time deciding all those in-between people. Like, is some, wealthy is kind of a relative term, isn't it? I mean, I mean if, if I make, you know, if I make $100,000 a year, which I don't, um, but if I, if I made $100,000 a year and somebody who makes $30,000 a year looked at me and says, oh, well, he's wealthy. But then I look at somebody who's making um, the, I mean, what is, uh, Bill Gates, I think, makes something like, like $15 million a minute or something like that, some, some astronomical amount of money. Um, so I look at somebody like, that's so wealthy, they're worth hundreds of billions of dollars. and go, I'm not wealthy, they're wealthy. It's all a relative term. In the ancient world, it wasn't so much as relative because here's what wealth was defined as. Wealth was defined by your legacy. Now, there are some fascinating ways that they tracked wealth in the ancient world. Um, I think my personal favorite is is Egypt. Because in Egypt, the hieroglyph for money, like, like how much money something was worth. We talk about things in dollars, right? Currency is our dollars. In Egypt, their symbol is a loaf of bread and a pitcher of beer. And they converted everything to how much beer and bread it would buy. Now, it's just a strange thing. We, we don't think that way. We go, what? We, I mean, dollars and cents. They didn't have a currency. Their currency was loaves of bread. Now, if you think about it, you live on a narrow strip of land that gets fertilized by a river, and on either side of you is desert. What's the most important thing in the world to you besides water? Food. So how much food do you have? I mean, because, I mean, you live in the desert, it, it only rains a couple months a year, and then it's dry the rest of the time, so for a little while you need a roof, but other than that, you don't. Um, the, the river provides all the fish and everything that you need. The only thing you're really concerned about is whether things will grow or not, and so that's their measure of wealth. You have more breath, bread than you can eat. You have more beer than you can drink. If you do, then you're wealthy. And the idea was to leave a legacy, because where does... It, where does um, where does bread and beer come from? Where do they come from? Grains. They come from wheat. They come from barley. Um, in our, our modern society, come from hops, you know, all these things. Um, but but the, this is where it comes from. It comes from growing things. And if you can grow things and have more than you need, then you're wealthy. What's more, wealth was determined by really the size of your family. Because if you think about it, you're a subsistence farmer, you're barely surviving, you're just scratching away. Um, you, you are going to get rid of extra family. And you say, that sounds wrong, that's terrible. Well, that's what they would do. If you had too many kids, you sold the kids. That was just the way it worked. It, it worked. Um, some of you are like, hmm. But this, is, but this is the way they worked. But if you, had enough, if you had enough fields and you had enough grain and you had enough um, uh, uh, milling stones and you had enough stuff that you could provide for your family, your family got bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know what? The bigger your family got, the better off your family was because the more kids you had, the more hands you had to work the fields, which meant you could work more fields. So you got wealthy. Wealth just multiplied itself and it was defined by your legacy. Could you, when you died, your family carry on what you were doing bigger and better? Could you generate more beer and more bread? 
That was all that the ancient cultures cared about. That was what it meant to be wealthy. Wealth was not tied to how many coins you had in a bag because they didn't use coins. Generally, they operated in a barter system. It was not even tied to how much land you possessed because in the ancient Near East, they had this, uh, uh, their concept of owning land is completely foreign to, to, to them. They would not have understood the idea that you go to a bank and the bank lends you money that you then, in theory, pay to someone else and they give you a piece of land. That was, that was foreign to them. And then you could put no trespassing signs up and people could not walk on your land. It, doesn't, it didn't work that way. Everybody used the same land. Everybody, if, if I was planting, if I was planting barley and wheat in my fields and somebody was walking along and they were hungry, they were entitled to walk over and take some of my barley and wheat, grind it in their hands and munch on it as a snack. They could do it. It actually appears in the New Testament. There's a, there's a passage about the disciples doing that. If you were growing trees and you were hungry, somebody was hungry walking down the street and they saw your, your orchard. They were perfectly allowed. It was within the cultural norm to just walk over, grab a piece of fruit and eat it as you walked. We did not own, they didn't own property the way that we think of owning property. So property meant nothing because if you weren't using it, somebody else could. We run into this in the book of Genesis. There's a story uh, about Isaac, Abraham's son, and a, 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 a Philistine uh, named Abimelech uh, and um, Isaac comes to these wells, and he says, hey, these are our wells. And the Philistines say, no, they're our wells. We've been using them. And Isaac says, no, my dad dug them. They said, well, you weren't touching them. They're, we're using them. And, and ultimately, Isaac goes and digs some more wells. Because really, you, you, can't, you couldn't walk in and say, well, this is mine. And they said, well, you weren't touching it. You weren't using it. It's been sitting around, so we're allowed to use it. Now, we would call this squatter's rights. But this is the way their culture worked. If you weren't there, it wasn't yours. This is, this is now, it solved a lot of problems. I mean, no, there's no trespassing laws or anything like that. Um, and for the most part, because people's lives subsisted of what was grown from those fields and those lands, they didn't mess with them. They generally treated them very well. It's part of a subsistence culture. So he's going he's gonna to deal with, Solomon's going to deal with an attitude toward wealth Three evils that he sees that come out of wealth. Here we go. Reading verse 13. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. Or wealth lost through some misfortune. So that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb. And as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Here's evil number one. You get it, you lose it, and no one gets it. The evil that he sees with wealth is that wealthy people, some wealthy people, they make it, they build up their legacy, then they lose it, and so nobody gets it. So here's evil number one. He says, so big deal if you get wealthy. Look what happens to wealthy people. You have to take risks. You have to take ventures. And if you lose it, if you choose to, to take the seed and, and you put all the, the seed that you harvested in the previous year and you put it in a, in a barn and that barn burns down, then you lose everything. So being wealthy doesn't mean anything. That's what he says. Evil number one. 
And uh, just so you know, the, the, the statement there, um, as he talks about it, he says uh, in, in, um, in verse 14, he says, wealth lost through some misfortune. It's actually the idea of evil business. The Hebrew phrase is inyan ara, and it means, it means uh, uh, business or actions that are evil. Not evil in the sense of like Satan and sin and stuff, just evil as in bad ideas. Okay, that would be the best idea. It would be today like saying, you know, you know what would be really great right now um, is investing in Fannie Mae stock. You know, this is kind of the equivalent of what he's talking about. He says it's just bad ideas and bad manager. And ultimately, the worrying about all of this, he says, it just creates anxiety and frustration. Wealth, just the, the idea of wealth and taking risks, it just creates anxiety and frustration. Now, True? To a certain extent, it is. Because when you've got money, you invest it, and you're taking a chance. You're taking a risk. Stock market crashes, and everybody goes, the FDIC covers that, right? No. Um, That's not the way it goes. So there's a certain amount of truth to what he says. Here he goes. Evil number two, verse 18. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and to be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. And if you... You read that, you've got to remember, he still categorized this as a great evil in verse 17. He says, I saw another evil. And the evil here is um, the evil of I make it, I spend it, and I waste it. God, all that God cares about is that you enjoy yourself. Just go crazy. So every cent you make, it's yours to spend. Um, and the anxiety of all of that, and we could get into the dis- discussion of this, but the argument is basically, look, God gave it to you to spend it, just enjoy yourself, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, I want to ask you to grab from that corner of your imagination Jesus' story. He says, I saw, knew a certain rich man who said that uh, I got all I need. I can go eat, drink, and be merry. And, and those of you that were paying attention, what did God what did Jesus have to say about that? He said, you fool, because what's going to happen? Tonight, you die. You think that you've got all your life to eat and drink and be merry. That you accumulated this wealth so that you could be happy. And in reality, you won't experience any of it. Now Jesus is making a very specific point about that. We're going to get to it, but I want to get through the evils first. But essentially the argument is God made you rich, enjoy it. We all know people like that, right? Well, not personally, but we see them on TV. Um, I was, uh, um, actually I think it came from Caleb. Caleb, the Italian who's lurking in the corner in the middle of the auditorium, doesn't want to have attention drawn to him, posted a thing on Facebook about a guy who had mounted, I think it was 4,000 watt sound system in his Chevy Tahoe. Was that you? 30,000 watt sound system. And there's this video of this guy listening to music and there's a guy leaning on the door and when the bass hits in this... Now, if you know anything about sound system, 30,000 watts is a lot of bass. 
And when the bass hits, this guy's shirt is shaking. It's actually creating so much wave, it's shaking. And you see this, you know, you see, you see the NBA players and all this, they pull up in their Escalade, and it's a stretch Escalade, and they've got all the things that they, they want, and, they, and hey, God made me rich, I'm going to enjoy it. That's the second evil. Then he says there's the third evil, chapter 6, verse 1. I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing in his heart, in his heart de- nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. And though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does this man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. So his third evil is you get it, you keep it, but somebody else spends it. So he's gone through three things. He said, you make the wealth, you lose it on business, nobody gets it. You make the wealth, you waste it on your own joy, or you make the wealth, you keep it, and somebody else spends it. So no matter what happens, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter what goes on, ultimately wealth is just rife with evil. Kind of a strange, strange statement. He continues on in, in, as he finishes chapter 6 and goes into chapter 7. And I, I want to kind of get to chapter 7 because he, he has this wonderfully, wonderful summation moment that he shares with us, but I just want to hit a couple of them. Uh, In chapter 6 and verse 8, he says this. What, What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man, is has, what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. And he has this beautiful verse right here. The more the words, the less the meaning. How does that profit anyone? Now, I want to give you a, a little bit of a different translation of that, of that, that verse. Because the, the Hebrew that underlies it is very mathematical. And this is what he says. He says, the more the words, the more, as in the more, more, like an amplification of the word more. So maybe the more the words, the most the emptiness. So the more words you have, the more, you, more words you add, emptiness or vanity is multiplied and it adds nothing to man. Now the Hebrew word... Wor- the Hebrew word for word, debar, it, it, it implies an action. Their words had an action tied to them. So in other words, what he is saying is, the more we think about wealth, the more we pour into this idea, this concept, the more we focus on it, the, it amplifies the vanity or the emptiness of life, and it adds nothing to us. 
got to tell you. Probably for the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says something that is absolutely true. There's no unequivocation about it. There's there's no um, arguing about it. What Solomon says here is true. The more we focus on wealth, the greater the emptiness or the vanity that is magnified around us. And what ultimately does it add to you as a man? What does it add to you as a woman? What does it create that you were not before? With all the wealth in the world, could you add back the gene that gives you diabetes? Get rid of it. With all the wealth in the world, can you genuinely, truly reverse aging? With all the wealth in the world, can you deal with what sin does to the world? The answer is no. You can't add anything to man. No matter how big a legacy you create, no matter how much you save, no matter how big the the quantity of what you have is, ultimately it does not change you in any way, shape, or form from being human. In the end, at the end of the day, when you are alone and you are by yourself, you are no more or less human than anybody else who shares your human flesh. So, verse 12. Who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? He takes a beautiful statement that sets us up for God to step in and tell us that we have, we have great potential that is not tied to our wealth, that being human means that we can be the recipients of grace from God, that, that being a, a, a descendant of Adam means that God loves us and is passionate about us and wants to move us. And what does he say? Who knows what is good for man? Life is meaningless. He puts his beret back on, gets in the darkness of the, gets his bongo out and says, life is terrible. That's what he does. He makes this phenomenal statement and his conclusion is, Ugh. He goes through and he talks about some stuff. He rephrases it poetically in chapter 7. I'm not going to get it to it. Um, but... He says this in verse 13 of chapter 7, and you can read the rest of chapter 7. It's really just a poetic phrasing, but, but he, he, gets, um, he gets to this, and he says in verse, 14, in verse 13 of chapter 7, Consider what is God, God has done. By the way, he's talking about all of this despondency and emptiness, so he's not really talking about God. But he says, Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Ah, you're broken, that's life. You're going to pursue wealth, but you're never going to obtain it. Life is terrible. Now, I want to go back to Jesus, if you don't mind. Remember the story we had there? Jesus told the story. We're going to pull that back out of our imagination. And I just want Jesus to end our sermon today. This is what Jesus says in chapter 12 of the book of Luke. Verse 22, then Jesus said to his disciples. So we could take this and say, now Jesus says this to us. 
Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Now that sounds very similar to what Solomon was saying in Ecclesiastes. But then he changes. Watch what he says. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. Do they, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will He clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world, human wisdom, runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, why are you worried about what you should know God will provide you with? Why do we go through life worrying about things with dollar signs attached to them? They're necessary, and God knows that it is necessary, and God has gifted us to do what needs to be done to support our families, and to, to care for our, our, the needs that need to be cared for, and to do the ministry that God has called us to do. But when we take it upon ourselves to worry about those things, as Solomon points out in Ecclesiastes, ultimately we just come to just running into the uselessness of wealth. You say, you know, do you believe that money is bad? I don't believe money is bad. I don't even believe that being rich is bad. And if any of you are rich and you're not telling us, no. Um, but, but none of that's bad because God gives it. What it is is the anxiety and the worry and the concern about it and it, that becoming life. You know what Jesus says in this passage? If I could summarize Jesus in this one passage, he says, God's got it under control. He's not going to hang you out to dry. It doesn't mean that we stop working and we go, well, God's going to just drop money from heaven. God gave you the job you have. God gave you the abilities you have. God gave you the passions you have to, to, to work and to do and to, to live and to provide. He does that. But we take it upon ourselves and we say, well, this is my responsibility. This is, I have to worry about building my wealth. I have to worry about accumulating this. I have to control about this. And let me, let me encourage you on something. This, is, this, is, this may be dangerous. So don't take this as normative, okay? In other words, don't take this as Eric said, I have to do it. I'm just offering a thought. 
As, as the Apostle Paul says, I, I speak for myself at this point. If you find yourself not being able to sleep or think because of money, doesn't matter whether it's debt or investments or whatever, if you find yourself in that position, let me tell you the best thing you could possibly do, distance yourself from that situation. Because you have taken it upon yourself to do what God said He would do. You have taken it upon yourself to guide this, to control it, to handle it, to deal with it, to somehow worry about it. And what does Jesus... Jesus doesn't say it in Luke. In another passage, He says it. He says, by, by thinking, who could add one inch to their stature? And that's my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Because I have thought about that a lot. But he says, look, you obsessing about it and looking and staring. And, and how, many, how many of you can identify with me? That moment when you stare at the checkbook and go, I, I, uh, I, ju- I, I, uh, uh, I got, uh, but we don't. Uh. I have taken it on myself. Taken God's provision as my obligation. And what do you do in that moment? You don't, well, I'm just going to drop off the grid and live in a log cabin somewhere and let my debtors chase me around. We, we, we distance ourselves and say, God, how are you going to provide? I'm going to put this in your hands. I'm not interested in becoming wealthy. If I become wealthy, it's because God has blessed me to be a blessing. I'm not interested in becoming poor. All right? Some people say, well, well, the answer to that is just give up all earthly possessions. Uh, Jesus had an accountant. Judas Iscariot walked around keeping the bag. He kept track. They spent money. But when I take it on myself, that is the danger. And that is when I arrive at this one. Who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow. Do you want to live as if you're a shadow or do you want to live as if you are a blessed child of God? I don't want to be a shadow. I don't want to feel like my life is vaporous, that I, I, I live to work. I want to work to live. I want to cherish what God has given me. and I want to see His blessing do great things in the world. Heavenly Father, we would ask that you do bless us. We know that you will. We know that you um, have said you will provide for our needs when we take the focus off of our own ability and we turn the focus on to you. Father, we would ask that you would um, lead us, teach us, direct us, guide us, open our eyes, our hearts, and our minds to see what You have provided for us, to be confident and rest in what You are doing. Lord, we pray that we would honor You in those things. And we ask that we would celebrate You in all our financial stages. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.